So, Mark. Yeah? We're doing this movie this week in part because on Friday, Godzilla vs. Kong is hitting HBO Max. If you say so. We are recording this in advance, and I don't believe anything about movie releases. I have confidence in Warner Brothers' bad plan to release their tentpole movies on HBO the same day that they are released in theaters. All right. I'm not betting on any other studio to keep a release date, but I am betting on this bad Warner Brothers plan. Okay, so this movie is coming out on Friday. Yeah. Godzilla vs. Kong. As they said in the tagline of another famous face-off, Alien vs. Predator, whoever wins, we lose. But is it Godzilla a friend of the humans in some of these movies? Yeah, it depends on the movie. Um, This is part of Legendary Pictures' Monsterverse, which is one word, but the V in verse is capitalized. Not everything has to be a verse, guys. So that one got its start with the 2014 Gareth Edwards Godzilla, and that one's not, like, anti-human. It's not even as aggressive as, like, the original 1954 Godzilla when it comes to attacking people. So, I, yeah, I guess that Godzilla is a good guy. In Godzilla King of the Monsters, which is not a good movie, Godzilla, like, fights off all the bad monsters. Godzilla and his tum, his chubby little tum. I did not see Kong Skull Island, which is also part of this monster verse. So I don't know, like, what his personality is here. I don't... I. I... I don't know or seen... care about any of these movies. <laughs> Have you seen none of these movies, Mark? <laughs> I've seen none of these movies. And the only reason I thought about watching Godzilla, King of the Monsters, is because I loved his chubby little tum. But then it got really bad reviews. You should maybe watch the 2014 like, nah. one. I've seen no Godzilla. The Gareth Edwards one is good. I actually, this week, kind of for the heck of it, since I was watching the original King Kong, decided I would also watch the 1954 Godzilla, which is also on HBO Max, and it kind of rules. Well, I mean, it's a movie about people in a nation trying to process the trauma of the nuclear bomb. I feel like there's going to be interesting ideas behind it. Yeah, there's a lot more of that and sort of more complicated engagement with that than I expected, too. Because the way they defeat Godzilla in that movie, spoilers for a, you know, 65-year-old movie, is that they have to develop their own, like... It's like a deoxygenator that they, like, drop in water and it, like, liquefies all the oxygen so that things living in the water will die. And there's a lot of debate in the movie about, like, we have built this incredibly destructive thing. Should we use it or not? And so they're facing this monster that was awoken by nuclear testing. And then they find themselves debating not about nuclear weapons, but effectively about a nuclear analog. Like, should we use this this one time and then stop ourselves from doing it again? Which I thought was very interesting. Yeah. Wow. I should watch this. I feel like it actually is one that I would find very intriguing. It rules. It feels a lot like the monster movies of the 1930s, of which King Kong is one, but also like Frankenstein. I thought a lot about the Wolfman while watching it, but it's got 20 years of filmmaking techniques and special effects technology that have developed since then, and they do some pretty cool stuff with it. And a lot of the early Godzilla movies are on HBO Max right now to promote Godzilla vs. Kong, and as part of their deal to have some of the Criterion library. I can't stop. We're recording this right after Arthur, and any break in my head I am hearing when you get caught between, between the, the moon and, and New York City. New York City. Um... Will, were you going to ask me a question? Yeah, so Godzilla versus Kong. 
<laughs> Mark, if you had yes. to add a third player to this fight, because I'm just assuming, like, rights-wise, neither Godzilla nor Kong will be allowed to decisively defeat the other. Which means they're going to have to team up against some third party. So, if you get to pick the third party, who is it? So, I know very little about these movies. But my first thought, strangely, was the Jigsaw puppet from the Saw movies. Oh. Just two giant monsters and a tiny little puppet riding a tricycle that has set death traps for them. (laughs) Godzilla wakes up chained to a wall as a giant buzzsaw is lowering down from the sky. Interesting. My other thought was the dune sandworms, because underground is a new element. That is cool. I like the idea of the sandworms. That's like just an actual, I think this would be a cool fight scene between a gorilla, a dinosaur, and a digging through the earth sandworm. The jigsaw thing made me think, I just rewatched Ready Player One like a week ago. And during the big final fight in that movie, as people are like pulling out all the weapons they've acquired in the game, someone pulls out a Chucky doll and tosses it into the battle. And the Chucky doll just like leaps onto a thing, stabs it, then like in defiance of physics, leaps onto the next nearest thing, stabs it, leaps onto the next nearest thing, stabs it. And I kind of think that on a small scale thing could be funny too. Fighting Godzilla and Jumbo Kong. (laughs) Just imagine the puppet tricycling up to these giant monsters and saying, Godzilla, Kong. Do you want to play a game? My actual answer is the Stay Puffed Marshmallow Man from Ghostbusters. Uh, classic. Yes, correct. Like, that's what I want to see. I want to see it box with King Kong. I would also like to see the Michelin Man get involved. Sure. But, like, if Godzilla takes a bite out of the Stay Puffed Marshmallow Man, is he just then, like, eating a chunk of marshmallow? Can Godzilla handle that? Does it stick his mouth together? That's how, that's how the Marshmallow Man wins. If Godzilla uses his, like, radioactive breath on the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man, do you have a toasted Stay Puft Marshmallow Man? Now, again, that's a great visual gag. Yeah. And frankly, I think that the MonsterVerse could benefit from some more comedy. I mean, obviously. I I think that most genres can benefit from more comedy. Pacific Rim had some jokes. Yeah. And that movie was fun. Yeah. The second one was very fine. It was aggressively fine. But the first one was very entertaining. It had some quality humor in it. Yeah. When you get caught between Between the moon and New (laughs) York City. City. Oh my god. You'll have to cut all these out, but it is so stuck in my head. This is our new theme song. (laughs) Oh my god. Anyway. Theme from We Love to Love, parentheses, the best that you can do. I genuinely am so excited to talk about this movie, so let's get this going because the romance of this film (laughs) welcome to we love the love a hollywood romance podcast i'm mark and i'm gay and i'm will and i'm a ginger this is an investigative podcast committed to examining one of the least important issues facing the world today does hollywood romance actually make any sense and are these people or apes actually dateable or even likable It doesn't matter if the romance is a main plot or a one-scene flirtation. We'll dig in and see what's there. And this week, we are looking at the romance of the iconic 1930s monster adventure movie, King Kong. This movie rules. It's so good. It was so good. I 
loved it so much. I had never seen this before. I hadn't seen it before. The effects were incredible. Yeah, more than anything else, this movie is a visual effects triumph. Yeah, I mean, this is the big action set piece film. Obviously, it is not the huge plot-driven romance. <laughs> oh, really? You think this romance is a little underbaked? <laughs> a little underbaked, a little rushed. But the effects were so fun to watch. I am obsessed with the gorilla looking in the window and then sticking his arm through a different window and grabbing people. That's because those are two different props. Oh, I'm sure. They had to be separate puppets. And that's in part because like, what's so cool about this movie is the way that it integrates stop-motion miniatures for special effects with live-action people. And so, like, for example, when the gorilla is climbing the skyscraper and it, like, reaches in and grabs the woman, those are two different elements put together where the gorilla climbing past the window is a stop-motion piece with a two-foot-tall gorilla model. And then the scene inside the room is obviously full-size live-action actor, and they have just a giant gorilla arm made out of rubber that they can pose that reaches in. And so they're putting those two things together to create the scene. It's really impressive for 1933. It's unbelievable. I can't imagine what seeing it would be like and I mean, at the that, time. That's part of why it was this gigantic hit. You know, it was enormously successful and hugely influential. Oh, clearly. I mean, I also loved watching this movie because I finally understand the last song in Rocky Horror Picture Show, which has the lot. Oh, hold on. Let me look them up. Is it when you get caught between the moon and New York City? I can't wait for all the people who did not listen to our Arthur episode <laughs> to come in for King Kong. So in the Rocky Horror Picture Show, Frankenfurter sings, Whatever happened to Faye Ray, the delicate satin-draped frame, as it clung to her thigh, how I started to cry, because I wanted to be dressed just the same. And now I get it, because she only wears satin. And she always is standing where her thigh is pressed against the satin, which is a very pre-code move. This movie is like one of the last ones that squeaks out before the code really takes effect. And there's nothing super risque about it, but her dresses are very clingy yeah, for the and time. Yeah, it's worth noting, like, it gets re-released a ton through the 1950s, and during that period, it gets chopped like bit by bit by censors over and over again in some versions the like aggressively murderous brontosaurus gets cut out in other versions kong tearing off Anne's clothes there were some cuts that insisted on removing the murder of the random woman that kong thought was Anne, and then throws to the ground when he realizes he's wrong this movie would suck without those elements though right it wouldn't suck but like I feel like the censors would cut out all the most interesting parts. Frankly, like, the violence of the movie is part of what's fascinating about it. And some of it's accidental. Like, the original cut of the movie was 13 reels. And a lot of people in Hollywood were superstitious and they didn't want it to be 13 reels. So they made the entire, like, elevated train sequence where Kong attacks the train just to add a 14th reel to the movie. When you said accidental, my first thought was, did they drop that woman for real? <laughs> <laughs> no, all the people who are dropped are, like, dummies. Yeah. They're, they're models. Oh, I know. But the ape fighting the train car was pretty cool. It's scary. It's scary. That shot of all the people, like, falling towards the back of the train is so well done. They it's must unsettling. have had so many stunt people in this movie. Yeah. Also, this is a time I can't imagine stunt people were compensated well or treated with good safety, so I hope they're all doing okay. Yeah, I would hope so too. 
Um, actually, speaking of, Bruce Cabot, who plays Jack, was a former stunt actor. This is like his first major role. I'm not going to say you can tell. <laughs> but I'm not, He's not, not the strongest performance I'm in the movie. I'm not not saying that. The strongest performance in this movie, number one. I mean, he gets his own title card. It's King Kong. King Kong, eighth wonder of the world. And number two is Fay Ray. Yeah. I really enjoy Robert Armstrong as Carl Denham. Her scream... I mean, it's probably, I feel like it must set the bar. Like, every scream queen is trying to live up to Fay Ray. Oh, totally. For the 50th anniversary re-release of this movie, they held a scream-alike competition. I feel like I've heard that scream in other movies, because it's so iconic. Yeah. So, what is your back, you know, neither of us had seen King Kong before. Like, had you seen any Kong media before? Uh, I've played Donkey Kong games. Sure. That counts. I have seen the Peter Jackson one, but I feel like I saw it in 2005 and I haven't seen it since. Okay. And I think that's it. But I've seen other monster movies. I think I've seen Dracula and The Mummy. Which predate this movie. Which, bo- yeah, which both predate this movie. But I was, that run of monster movies, granted this isn't universal, it's uh, radio pictures. But it's coming out in the same time. But it's coming out at the same time. So I kind of had some sense of what these movies were like. And this one is by far my favorite. Well, I think what's interesting is that this takes the monster movie formula very much so. I thought about The Wolfman a lot in terms of how it brought in, like, the referenced legends of this monster. And then spools it out a little bit. Although this movie's a heck of a lot better than The Wolfman. (laughs) But it also brings in the stuff from that adventure genre. You know, this movie comes out in 1933. It's less than a decade after the excavation of King Tut's tomb. And, I mean, I think the Thief of Baghdad was, what, like three years before? Something Four like years that. before? So that genre of, like, adventure, uncharted worlds kind of thing is really popular in the U.S. and the U.K., which obviously often comes along with some, like, very troubling depictions of non-white people, as is true in this movie. Oh, boy, howdy. I was going to bring up the racism next. Yes. But it is also this genre that, you know, we have today in, like, Indiana Jones and stuff like that. But back then, it's the period of Tarzan and the Apes, of King Solomon's Mines, the excavation of King Tut's tomb, that then feeds into these pulp novels. It finds its way into comic books. You know, I was watching this movie, and I was thinking about the Savage Land from Marvel Comics, which is this region of Antarctica that is somehow preserved as a jungle that has dinosaurs in it. And people, like, happen into adventures that lead them into the Savage Land, and they go on wacky adventures. You might have seen it. If you've ever seen that comic panel that goes around of Spider-Man arguing with a pterodactyl about curing cancer versus turning people into dinosaurs. Yes, but he wants to turn people into dinosaurs. So that's set in the Savage Land. Ah, I was thinking about that when you said this. Yeah. I love I love old dinosaur media. They're great. I read Conan Doyle's The Lost World, which is about dinosaurs on a South American plateau. Another thing that I thought about a lot during this movie. Actually, so Willis O'Brien, who we should talk about some, was the visual effects director on this movie, particularly with regard to the miniatures. Um, he had this background in stop motion animation, and he did the effects for a 1925 adaptation of The Lost World. So he had done, like, dinosaur animation before. 
It is also really fun that our knowledge of dinosaurs has come so far even in the like 30 years since Jurassic Park. So even back then, the dinosaurs are still so out of date. Jurassic Park is another movie that gets a lot of its structure from this one, though. If you think about it in, yeah. t- in terms of like the journey to this mysterious place, they go through a giant gate. They at first are excited about the possibility of adventure and making money. Then they experience the horror of the monsters. Like, there's a lot of parallel between those two movies. But then the commitment to money keeps putting people in danger. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, it's greed that killed the beast. Yes, it is not beauty. It is not beauty. That beast was doing just fine. Yeah, he was. people wanted to kidnap it for money. Kong was doing pretty well. One of the things I like in terms of Kong in New York, they use a bigger model. Like, the Kong model in the jungle is 18 inches. The Kong model in New York is a full two feet tall. But he looks so small next to all the buildings. And I like that a lot. I mean, I read that the director, after, you know, decades of saying that there was no underlying message that they had in mind making it, finally said that it was more about, like, modernism overcoming as he put it, the primitive. And I think just the size of the monster in New York is a good visualization of that. Of just, he is the king back at home, but as soon as he's transported to the city, he's still dangerous, but he's so tiny in comparison to New York. There's not room for him. Right. The directors are fascinating guys. Marion Cooper and Ernest Shodzak. They had made a bunch of movies before this that were primarily what they called natural dramas. The Carl Denham character is basically just Marion Cooper, where he would, like, go into, like, jungles or savannas or whatever and just bring a camera crew and shoot whatever was going on and then build some story around it. So, like, there are stuff from his earlier movies where his camera's, like, right up against a wild tiger, And they're just seeing what they could do. I love that the movie opens with Denim complaining about how everyone wants women in films and how dare they be interested in women in movies. Well, it's not just women. It's he's specifically complaining that he's been getting all these bad reviews that say his movies would be better if they had romance. And it sounds like he's just not interested in plot that much either. No, he just wants to shoot wild stuff happening. Denim would have done better at a National Geographic filming situation, I think. Right. But in this time period, National Geographic is too busy, like, financing map-making expeditions in the Amazon. Right. And also writing really bad things about non-white people. Oh, yeah. Definitely. Just like this movie. Uh, That's the thing is, like, this movie rules and is a ton of fun, and the visual effects are great. I think it's also... Probably the most racist movie we've ever covered on this podcast. Yes. I would say so. I was surprised that they cast black people. Right. It's the kind of thing of like, oh, you hired black people, including some like black actors who were involved in the Lincoln Picture Company and like really a part of black cinema. But you cast them to play Polynesians in a very disturbing stereotype of Polynesians. Yeah, it's it's rough. On top of that, you've got Charlie the Cook, who is this Chinese guy working on the ship who speaks in broken English. Again, it's weird because it's like, at least he was played by a Chinese actor. It's so rare. I was like, oh, wow, this movie is so racist, but at least I didn't have to watch people in yellow or blackface. Yeah, it's pretty bad. Oh, it's terrible. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. 
and there's even the like the element which the directors long pushed back on as like this was not a thing that was on our radar which doesn't really excuse it but like kong the giant ape and its fixation on white women that is fairly uncomfortable even if they weren't intending it there is very easily a full racist interpretation of this story not even just in the depiction of the natives so it's kind of a complicated movie to talk about from that sense right it's definitely not the most racist movie of the time no i mean it's not even the most racist movie with this kind of thing going on in 1930 there was this movie called ingagi that was one of the highest grossing movies of the decade and its success helped get the financing for King Kong. And that is a movie that purported to be a documentary, but was actually fiction, about an alleged ritual in which African women were given over to gorillas as sex slaves. Oh, boy. Yeah. So, like, this kind of stuff is very much a part of that adventure genre. Ugh. I thought they were just giving the girl over at the beginning to be eaten by Kong. I have no idea what's happening there. It's weird to me that we never see her again. Yeah. That, to me, implies that she was eaten. Yeah, because they say, like, she's the bride of Kong, but I just assumed that she was going to get eaten. Yeah, I uh, I don't know. But it's also the kind of thing where if you're an audience in 1933 and you saw Ingagi, as most people did, you might read a very different meaning into that phrase, the bride of Kong. Yeah. That, ugh. It is very rough watching that scene. It's much easier... When they're just, like, watching dinosaurs fighting (laughs) gorillas. Or, like, even the New York stuff is less uncomfortable to watch. But the native scenes are just so painful. It's the kind of thing where, like, hmm, this movie would have been better if it only had white people in it. (laughs) Which is an unfortunate thing to say. Yeah. I just, like, Charlie the Cook was such a weird character. Why did they include him? Apparently, he has a much bigger role in the sequel. I mean, the other thing is, if he didn't speak broken English, there wouldn't really be that big of a problem with him. No, he would be fine. He's a cook that peels potatoes, is annoyed by having to peel so many potatoes for the white people that he wants to move back to China, and then discovers that Anne has been taken, and that we don't see him again. Right, if he didn't speak broken English, you'd be like, oh, so there's a Chinese guy on the ship, that's fine. But the fact that he speaks broken English is itself kind of weird, just in that in 1933, the Chinese Exclusion Act is still in effect. So if that guy is from the U.S., at his age, he's never been to China. He would have lived in the U.S. his entire life. I mean, I guess he maybe lives on the boat. Yeah, where everyone speaks English. And he's from China, just has only ever been on the boat. That's possible. I don't know. I feel like if there was an industry that you could probably get into under the Chinese Exclusion Act in the 30s, it would be shipping. Yeah. But still, there's no reason for him to be speaking this way. But it's not like he was lecherous towards Anne, which was nice. He's just like perfectly fine. (laughs) He's just peeling his potatoes. Literally, his biggest scene is him just peeling potatoes. And And not liking potatoes. And complaining about how many potatoes white people eat. And, you know, white people do love potatoes. I eat so many potatoes. They're also good food to bring on a ship because they don't rot super easily. Yeah, they have some staying power. Doesn't mean I haven't opened a cabinet and dug in the back and found a really gross potato. (laughs) I like potatoes getting gross, though, because at least they don't just, like, schlump the way that, like, other fruit do. They just, like, grow weird appendages. Yeah, they grow out and then get gross. Oh, boy. 
This movie was a hit, right? Oh, this movie was a gigantic hit. It premiered in New York City on March 2nd, 1933. It had a week of sold-out performances. It, like, broke records for a show in New York. Then they opened it in L.A. and then around the country. And yeah, it was a, a gigantic hit. And, of course, hugely influential. It's added to the National Film Registry in 1991. It was ranked number 43 on the original AFI Top 100, moved up to number 41 on the 2007 version. To me, I think, like, the ultimate example of what a hit this was is that they fast-tracked Son of Kong so aggressively that they released it the same year this movie came out. What? Yeah. Wow. You could just do whatever you wanted back then. Yeah. And, like, part of it's more novel because, like, a lot of zoos did not have great ape exhibits, so gorillas were really unusual to people at the time. Yeah, I mean, also, people clearly didn't know what gorillas did because... Gorillas are not carnivores. I mean, it's not entirely clear to me that Kong is a gorilla. Like, I think he's his own thing. He's the eighth wonder of the world. Right. Kong. The movie kind of has an interesting origin from a couple of different angles. So Marion Cooper had wanted to make a movie featuring gorillas because he's like, gorillas are kind of fascinating. They're this weird animal that we don't have a lot of exposure to. And just recently, people had proven to whites the existence of komodo dragons because white people had just refused to believe they were real uh there's a line in this movie that pissed me off where they're talking about the wall yeah and jack's like i've been and no one knows who built angkor was like everyone knows like everyone in the region knew who built angkor the people that live there built angkor it was not some mysterious force like it wasn't aliens it's just i know they're not white but they can still build right uh angkor wat and Angkor Thom, amazing places to visit. Someday, if you could travel again, would recommend Cambodia. And it's worth noting that, like, in places in the world where during this time period stuff is being discovered that there is no living memory of, like, there are, like, archaeological sites in the Yucatan that in the 1920s people are discovering, and there is nobody in the region with living memory of those sites. That's because disease brought by Europeans killed people off to the point that they could no longer maintain those sites. Uh, I will also point out Angkor Wat, has been almost continuously inhabited since by monks. Right. It was so that really doesn't even work with lost. that example. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, Marion Cooper wanted to make a movie with gorillas, and his plan was, we've just decided Komodo dragons are real, so I'm going to capture some gorillas, take them to Komodo, and have the gorillas fight Komodo dragons. Absolutely not. Thank God he didn't do that. So he tried to do it, but Paramount refused to finance a shoot that would go to both Africa and Komodo. Can you imagine shipping gorillas to Komodo, Indonesia? But, like, the thing that saved them was Paramount not wanting to spend money. Thank God. Also, like, Komodo dragons are very large. Yeah. Gorillas are massive. Gorillas are so big. We saw them in Congo. Yeah, look how big they are in Congo. And they've got lasers. It's just, they're so big. It wouldn't really, I guess they would fight, but I feel like the gorilla would do quite well. Yeah. Oh, definitely. The gorilla would win. Yeah. But so then Paramount refuses to make the gorilla versus Komodo dragon movie. Meanwhile, RKO agreed to finance an adaptation of the most dangerous game. So Cooper goes to RKO to make the most dangerous game. And then like, a lot of the core cast of this movie is involved. Like, Faye Ray is in it. Robert Armstrong is in it. Bruce Cabot auditioned to be one of the stuntmen in it. 
and didn't get cast, but like that puts him in the orbit here. So Cooper then is shooting the most dangerous game and also trying to convince RKO to finance his guerrilla movie, which at the time is called The Beast. So they'd be shooting the movie during the day and then use this same jungle soundstage at night to shoot test footage for The Beast, which becomes King Kong. And the point where it all comes together is when Selznick asks Cooper to, like, help them figure out some budget issues that they're having. And Cooper points out that they have spent, like, $100,000 on a Willis O'Brien project. So O'Brien is this VFX guy. He's a pioneering stop-motion animator. He'd made a bunch of stuff for the Edison Film Company in the 19-teens. Like, he's one of the inventors of stop-motion animation. And he was working on a movie called Creation... That was a lot like the Conan Doyle Lost World story, where in that one, these people get stranded on an island. There are a bunch of dinosaurs. And they'd spent like $100,000 and they had like 10 minutes of footage for this movie of stop motion animation of dinosaurs. So Marion Cooper is like, holy cow, this movie is a money pit. You should not keep spending money on it. So they pull the plug on creation and then Cooper pulls Willis O'Brien over and is like, yo, I've got a movie where you could put dinosaurs into it. Big monkeys, Joe. So Willis O'Brien comes over to The Beast, and he leads a lot of the VFX work on that that makes it possible for them to make this movie without going and doing location shooting. I feel like I've seen some terrible stop motion that was like 20 years after this movie. Yeah. Part of what's so cool about it is the way that the stop motion is integrated with the live action performance. I mean, there's that scene of Kong lifting the log and shaking it back and forth and the human actors are falling off. Right. And just even the scenes where Anne is trapped under a log at the front of the screen while Kong and the T-Rex are fighting in the background. Having a person on screen gives the stop motion more scale. And it's basically the same technology as like rear projection where you see a scene of someone in a car and the back window is video of a street behind them but using it in so much more creative ways and they uh sydney saunders and fred jackman who oversaw the projection work won a special achievement oscar for this movie i mean it's crazy that they didn't have a special effects award so they like couldn't get an oscar for that yeah it didn't exist at this point there just wasn't one i mean this would have been what academy awards for something like that yeah but yeah the effects work in this is just so cool how much they're able to pull in and integrate the stop motion stuff with the live action. Like we said, this movie's on HBO Max. And as we said, the the racial stuff is, is really troubling. But even if you just watch the segments when they're beyond the wall on Skull Island, where none of that is really going on, it's it's pretty cool to just check that out and see the kind of work they're doing. Yeah, you could look up just like the King Kong T-Rex fight. And watch that, and you get a pretty good sense. And then the final scene of Kong climbing the Empire State Building. The most famous moment in the movie. It's pretty good. Yeah. The pilot and gunner who we see in close-up attacking Kong are played by Marion Cooper and Ernest Shodzak, the directors. That's fun. Well, Cooper himself was a World War I flying ace and was reported dead over Germany twice during the war. <laughs> oh my god. But you know, Will. It was beauty that killed the beast, not those planes. Not those planes. I mean, but here's the thing is like getting shot off the top of the Empire State Building is what happens when you get caught between the moon and New York City. <laughs> oh, God. I am so annoyed at how stuck that line is <laughs> in my head. <laughs> it is the only line we know. When you get caught between the moon and New York City. You get so, shot off the Empire State Building by three planes. Look, Kong did... 
the best that he could do. So should we talk about the romance of King Kong? Yeah, because there's some moments in this that are just wild. Yeah, and yet somehow we're not going to be talking about, like, the grisly murders when Kong, like, crushes people into the mud. Yeah, if you strip out everything down to the romance, this movie would be four minutes long. (laughs) All right, so let's get started. All right, so every week we do break down the romance into five distinct points. Sometimes it's more difficult than others. It wasn't hard to come up with five points for this. They are just small points. Yeah. So the first point of this movie, Will, is what? So Carl Denham is a film producer who is trying to make a movie about King Kong, the eighth wonder of the world. Who gets a full card credit in this movie. I love it. He doesn't know what Kong is at this point. He just has a map to Skull Island. And he's been told basically something cool is there. Yes. But he's sick of critics telling him that his movies need romance. So he just like hires a woman that he meets in a bread line. Because he is talking to a casting director. The casting director is like, I'm not going to send my actresses alone as the only woman on a ship to the middle of nowhere. To a location that you will not identify. (laughs) So have a good day. Goodbye. I think it's interesting how specifically this movie is set during its time, which is the Great Depression, where it's like the fact of widespread poverty is a big part of why Anne is willing to go along with this. Yeah, there's a huge line at the women's shelter, and she's like, not really, she can't get in for the night. Right. So instead... In another classic scene of someone rescuing a woman who is caught stealing two weeks in a row. That's true. I didn't think about that. Denim buys her an apple and takes her to a diner. And he hires her to be in his movie. After she first thinks that he's trying to hire her as a sex worker, which is very blatant. Like, it's not said, but it's very blatant. I love pre-code movies. And then he explains, and then he hires her to be an actress. And I have to say, Faye Ray is just stunning. Yeah, I mean, we talk about this a little bit in our Gold Diggers of 1933 episode, but it's kind of striking to watch actors who have experience in silent film and the way that they are used to effectively using poses to tell emotional stories. I mean, the screen test he gives her is so clearly it's for silent developed film. for silent film. Her screen test is like, look down at the ground and then slowly look up and notice me and smile. And it's all about conveying emotion through just the face. He doesn't ask her to read lines or anything. So anyway, our point number one, the ship is underway, and Anne is on the deck feeling pretty great. What are you doing up here? I just wanted to... I think this is awfully exciting. I've never been on a ship before. Yeah, she's walking around. She's the only woman that apparently has been on this ship in its history, as we find out. Josh E. Gibbs told us in Pirates of the Caribbean, The Curse of the Black Pearl, it's bad luck to have a woman aboard. But she's walking around, and then she comes across the first mate, Jack. Who punches her in the face. (laughs) Just punches her in the face. And he's basically like, why were you in the way of my fist? (laughs) Yeah, he's like, why were you in the way of my fist? I hate that you're here. I hate all women. Women are disgusting. She's like, I'm not really in the way. And he's like, no, you are. And she's like, nothing is going on around here. And he's like, I cannot swing my fist without hitting you. (laughs) It's, like, pretty unclear to me how it happened. Yeah, I don't really get it. He just punched her, like, kind of out of nowhere. But clearly it's supposed to be unintentional. Yeah, 
I don't really understand. There are so many things that could have been done to explain away why he hit her. But instead, it's just kind of vaguely like, why did your face hit my fist? It's like he's doing some swinging arm exercises back and forth. Yeah, it's weird. And they have a very gruff conversation. But then later, End we of get point to one. point two. Point two. They have a friendlier conversation. You're on deck if the light's right. Yes? Why? Yes, but you're not the movie director. <laughs> and she is practicing for her screen test. And she explains that part of the purpose of the screen test is to identify which side of her face looks better. And Jack says, both of them look all right. Yeah. Oh, look at him. He's being nice. And she's going on about how, like, being on the ship is the happiest time of her life. She has regular food. There's a sense of adventure. And Jack is just, like, gruff and uninterested. Like, he's polite, but he's like, I have no idea why you would like being here. Right. Is that the end of point two? I think pretty much. Talk. Jack yeah. goes to a meeting with Carl Denham and the skipper. And Carl is like, Jack, I've got enough problems going on without a love affair taking place. Yeah. But that doesn't put a stop to it. Point three. In their third conversation. You hate women. Yeah, I know. They both announce that they are in love with each other. <laughs> this is after their first day on Skull Island when the natives offered to like buy Anne. So they left. Because they'd never seen a blonde before. Yeah, Jack tells Anne he loves her in the best conversation of the movie. I just it was so uncomfortable. And the thing is, it's like Anne says, I thought you hated women. And Jack says, you're not a woman. And then doesn't really follow it up with anything. No, they just kiss. They just can't. Like, he just says, you're not a woman. Like, what does that mean? Like, you're not like other women. You're an individual. I think it's supposed like, to be, you're not like other women. It's crazy. It's crazy. It's so weird. And then they kiss. And, and then they, they kiss. kiss. Point four. Holly Stone is punch her in the face and ignore her. So they kiss, and then he, like, has to go deal with something, and while she's waiting for him, she then gets kidnapped by the natives. So they have to go behind the wall to rescue her. Point four, Jack rescues Anne from Kong. So, basically, everyone Jack is with has died. Yes. Except for him. They get killed by Kong or dinosaurs. There is, like, a crazy murderous brontosaurus that eats that guy out of a tree. Yeah, there's some gruesome deaths. I love it. But Jack somehow manages to get Anne away from Kong's lair and takes her back outside the wall. And then they capture Kong. And then they capture Kong. And yeah, that's point four. And point number five is back in New York. She has lived through an experience no other woman ever dreamed of. And she was saved from the very grasp of Kong by her future husband. So they are at the premiere of Kong, the eighth wonder of the world, which apparently people think is a movie and spent $20, which is insane for a movie ticket in 1933. Right. Like a really high price for a movie ticket is 75 cents. And I was so confused why that woman was willing to pay $20 for a movie. Just picture it. It would be like paying $200. Yeah, which I would not do. I would not do. I would not do it in a house. But yeah, so Anne and Jack are backstage, and Denim says, like, congrats on the engagement, essentially. 
Well, he's talking about how he's going to introduce them both as part of the show, and he's going to be like, yes, the heroic Jack saved Anne, and now they're engaged. And that's their status at the end of the movie. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you get a lot more action after the photographer's flashing cameras sets Kong off, and he tries to kidnap Anne again, and then climbs the Empire State Building, and he dies. But Anne is rescued again by Jack. End of romance! End of romance. So, Mark... Do you find the romance of King Kong believable? They have three conversations. <laughs> the first one, he punches her and says he hates women. The second one, he s- gives her a minor compliment, but then just ignores whatever else she says. And then the third one, they're in love and kiss. So I'm going to go with nah. So what's funny is that like my pre-existing exposure to King Kong was from the, I think it's like, Treehouse of Horror 4, where it's like Bart's Halloween party and they're going around telling spooky stories, and Grandpa Simpson tells King Homer, which is a pretty faithful adaptation of King Kong, except that Marge falls in love with King Homer. So I was expecting that to be more implied romance. So this was more believable than my expectation, but still not believable. Uh, every week we rate the romance on a scale of 1 to 10, with 1 being least, 10 being the most believable. Will, where would you rate King Kong on our believability scale? Is it like a 2 with some points given for people got married fast back then? I was gonna say that exactly. <laughs> Great. Glad we're on the same page. Do you think Anne or Jack is dateable? Jack, no. He seems terrible. He seems awful. Anne, she seems nice. She seems perfectly fine. She's gorgeous. Yeah. Do you think Anne and Jack would stay together? I think they probably will. Um, yeah. But I'm worried Jack might hit her again. <laughs> I just don't understand how that happened. <laughs> I don't either. No, oh, Mark, boy. if you had to pick one person in this movie with very few characters to date, who would you choose? I think I would date the casting director from the beginning. That is a strong choice. To genuinely care about the people he manages to the point where he won't ship them off to an unknown location on a boat full of creepy men. It's <laughs> a really good choice. Bare minimum. But he seems nice enough. I was thinking about doing the woman who thought she was going to see a movie, but actually she seems dumb. Yeah. Ooh, or the skipper. Yeah, I like the skipper a lot. I think I'll date him. He's a nice guy. He has engaged enough with native people to learn their language he's just an old man doing his best driving his boat yeah i'll i'll date the skipper now mark yes many of the films we've covered on this podcast have been adapted into stage musicals do you believe this should be done with king kong no i think the coolest parts of this are the like the big fight scenes and i feel like movie this is a movie this is a movie capital m t m And I love movies, and I think this is a great movie. It is a great movie. It has also been adapted into a musical twice. Yeah, I figured that would be the answer, but that doesn't mean I agree with it. There was a South African jazz musical adaptation in 1959. Great, back on board. (laughs) And an Australian Broadway-style show in 2013 that actually came to Broadway in 2018. And the general consensus on that one was the show is terrible, but the puppets are really cool. I somehow totally forgot about this. Yeah, I heard about that. I thought about seeing it just for the puppet. Yeah. We ended up seeing the play that goes wrong instead. All right. Wow. 
I can't believe that happened. How did they do the dinosaurs? Were those puppets too? I assume. Ugh. Broadway. <laughs> well, I think that about does it for King Kong, the eighth wonder of the world. Next week, we will be discussing a movie that I am ashamed to admit I have never seen, A Knight's Tale. Classic early Heath Ledger role um, with some Paul Bettany fun on the side. Until then, you can follow this show on Facebook and Twitter at Love the Love Pod, and you can email us questions or movie suggestions at lovethelovepod at gmail.com. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe, especially on Apple Podcasts, to help new people find the show. All right, Will. <laughs> Last question. Oh What's the best piece of dating advice we got from King Kong? Here's the thing. There's none. There's All I got is, tell a woman both sides of her face are pretty. Yeah, that's kind of it. I cannot think of a single other thing that I can even spin in this movie. Don't punch women. Don't tell women you hate them. Don't punch anyone. In this movie, both those things work. Yes, and that's why I hate it. But enjoyed the movie. Anyway, there you go. Until next time, I'm gay. And I'm a ginger. So between the two of us, we know everything there is to know about romance. Bye. Bye. King Kong listens to no men. King Kong goes it alone. King Kong more than a showman. He's me. I'm him. King Kong. Before King Kong would sing the song. King Kong, King Kong, a man again is done for ten. King Kong, King Kong.